All right, take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24, as we continue our study through the first book of the Bible, this book that is so important, foundational, and so much understanding of the rest of Scripture. We're, today, we're going to look at Genesis 24. We're going to make three observations regarding this chapter and then two practical applications. Let me set the context. When we turn to Genesis 24, Abraham is 140 years old. For three years, he has been living without the love of his life. Sarah has passed away. And at the end of this chapter, we learn that the family is still kind of grieving her death even after these three years. So Abraham, when Sarah died, purchased some land in Hebron. That's very important. Hebron is located right here in um, the area called Canaan. Uh, the area of Canaan would be like us saying Europe. So you have the area of Europe, but there are a lot of countries there. You have the area of Canaan, but there are a lot of countries in the land of the Canaanites. Hebron's here. Jerusalem is about 20 miles north and the Dead Sea is about 15 miles east. In that day, and even today, when you bury a family member, you want to do it uh, at a place that is significant to you, right? And so Abraham burying Sarah in Canaan was extremely significant. Remember, he was from Ur. All his family is back there. He and Lot, his dad, they left. They went up uh, to the north part of Canaan. They were there for a while. His father died, and then they went down into the land of Canaan. So Abraham now has a choice. Does he go back and bury Sarah uh, in the land where they are both from, or does he bury her here in Canaan? And it's significant he chooses to bury her here because in doing so, Abraham is driving a stake. He's saying, this is the land God promised us. This is my new homeland. This is where my wife is going to be buried. This is where I'm going to be buried. And so he buys this cave from a Hittite, who's one of the Canaanites, and he buries Sarah there in the land of Canaan. Again, driving a stake saying, this is now my homeland. Abraham was well advanced in years. Sarah was gone. And Isaac, the son through whom God would make Abraham a great nation, was 40 years old. So Abraham, in chapter 24, the entire chapter is about finding a wife for Isaac. This chapter focuses on the story of that plan. Here's the first point I want to make from the story before we get into the text. Believers take the responsibility for their legacy. Believers take the responsibility for their legacy. Abraham, 140 years old, he knows he doesn't have a lot of time left, and he knows that Isaac does not have a wife. He knows that God is going to uh, build a great nation through Isaac, and so he makes certain that, she, that Isaac has a wife that will be God's choice for her. See, God promised Abraham this great future. Back in, in Genesis chapter 12, he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And then in, in chapter 15, 
uh, he, he took Abraham outside and he said, remember, count the, count the stars if you can count them. Your offspring are going to be as numerous as the stars. Then in chapter 21, he and Sarah finally had that promised son. Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90 years old. Couldn't have happened unless it was a miracle of God. They have the son Isaac. He's there. Everything's set except that. Isaac doesn't have a wife. And so Abraham is going to make certain that he takes his responsibility in building his legacy. See, trusting God doesn't mean we stand still. Resting in God doesn't mean we are silent or we're in one spot. A life of faith is a life of action. It's a life of movement. It's a life of doing something. It's a life of acting on God's promises. Yes, God is sovereign. He'll get done what he wants to get done, but he uses people. He uses us. Aren't you glad he does that? What a privilege. And he works in real time and he works in real life to accomplish his purposes. So believers, we have the, we have the great responsibility and the tremendous privilege of partnering with God in the things that he wants us to do. So Abraham calls his chief servant, man in charge of everything he owns, more than likely uh, this is the man that we first were introduced to back in uh, Genesis chapter 15, Eliezer of Damascus, his chief servant. Look at chapter 2, or chapter 24, verse 2. He said to the chief servant in his house, Eliezer, the one he put, had put in charge of everything, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, by Yahweh, the covenant God, the relationship God, Yahweh, the God, that's the word Elohim, the all-powerful God, Yahweh, uh, Yahweh, the Elohim of heaven and the Elohim of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but you'll go to my country and my relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Now, Abraham has a lot of money. Abraham is very wealthy, and Abraham is going to give this inheritance to Isaac. There were in Canaan many very beautiful, eligible Canaanite women who would have loved to be the wife of a very wealthy man. But there was, a there was one problem with the Canaanite women. What was it? They didn't serve Yahweh. And so Abraham says, you cannot get a wife or my son from this pagan area. You're going to go back to my relatives, back to my country, where Yahweh is honored, and you need to find a wife for my son from that area. Now, Eleazar, and really the rest of the chapter is about Eleazar. He is an amazing man. He is a godly man, we're going to see. And he wants to make certain that he got the instruction right. That's a, it's a pretty heavy assignment, right? This is going to be, this is the son of promise. And he needs a wife that is going to uh, walk with him and partner with him uh, in, in God's plan. Heavy assignment. He wants to make sure he gets it. So verse 5, the servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back to the land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Notice what Abraham says. Make sure you don't do that. You keep him here. I don't want him going back to Ur. 
I want him here. This is the land God promised us. This is where God's going to build his nation. We are hearing, I don't want him going back to Ur and having any temptation to stay there. You make certain that you keep my son right here. You make certain that you go get a wife from the land of my relatives. So um, the oath is made. He makes certain, Eliezer does, that he's going to go back to the land. And look at what uh, Abraham tells him in in verse uh, 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, who spoke to me and promised me, the God who has been with me all this time. He, he, re, he reviews the history. We need to do that sometimes, don't we? If we wonder what God's going to do in the future, we just need to think, okay, what's God been doing in the past? The God who's been with me all this time, the God, the God who said to your offspring, I'm going to give this land here, um, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. Eliezer, you don't have to worry about it. God's in control. Now, Abraham also says, and I think this is so cool, there's practical stuff here, right? If the woman's unwilling to come back, if for some reason I'm missing this, if she's unwilling to come back, you're off the hook. You're off the hook regarding the oath. But God's going to take care of it, Eliezer. You don't have to worry about it. So Eliezer gets his men together. He loads up 10 camels, all kinds of expensive gifts, jewelry, gold, silver. He loads them with a lot of food and a lot of water, and he loads them with supplies because check this out. They're over here in Hebron. This is where Abraham came from, land of Ur. Remember this right here, the Euphrates and the Tigris River? This is called Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is between the rivers. And he's going to go back to the land, and he ends up heading this direction, ends up right here in Nahor, Nahor and Haran were cities named after Abraham's brothers. Terah, remember, had uh, three sons, Abraham, uh, Nahor, and Haran. He leaves Haran, or he leaves Hebron, goes up here to Nahor. This is a 500-mile trip. That's a long trip, isn't it? With camels? I mean, in a car, that's a long trip. But with 10 camels making your way across the hot, dusty desert. Most commentators think that would have taken two months of hard travel. But Eliezer is in lockstep with Abraham and what Abraham wants him to do. He's a godly man, and he does what Abraham asks him to do. And we're going to see throughout the story, again, most of it focuses on Eliezer. He does it with urgency. He gets the job done. He wants to make sure he doesn't miss anything. So, two-month trip. It's, it's amazing when you read Scripture. From verse 11 to verse 12 is like two months or years. She goes, and he gets to Nahor, this city named after Abraham's brother, and he doesn't waste any time. He doesn't say, man, that's been a long trip. I need to take a break. I need to refresh myself. He goes right to the place where he knew young women would be, right when he got into town. Look at verse 11. 
He had the camels near, near, kneel. It's a hard word to say. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Now, if you're going to build a city, what is the one thing you have to have? Non-negotiable. Water, right? So all cities are built around a water supply. In that day, they would dig a well, and if the well was big enough, then you could build a city around it. The wells were normally located outside of town. Why would they be located outside of town? Because inside the city, you got, you got people walking, you got uh, animals moving around, you got a lot of dust kicked up in the air, and you don't want dust to go into the well. So it's outside of town. That meant that somebody had to go out and get the water. And that was the job of the young maidens, the job of the young women. They would go out early in the morning and they would bring water for the family for the day. And then they'd go out in the evening and they would bring water for their family during the evening. Sometimes, depending on the size of the family, they have to make two or three trips. They would put the jar either on their shoulder or the jar on their head. And so Eleazar is very practical, right? He doesn't go to the local bar. He didn't go to the house of ill repute. He goes to the place he knows, young, responsible, unmarried, hardworking, industrious women who are carrying out a task for their family. They're going to be there. Now, there are a lot of girls that are going to be coming out. So, Eliezer, Eliezer needs to decide, needs to make a decision, who, who is it or who could it be? Or maybe this isn't even in Nahor. Maybe I need to go to another town. So what is the first thing he does? He does something very practical. He goes by the well. What's the second thing he does? He prays. Look at verse 12. Then he prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. Now he gets specific. See, I'm standing beside this spring uh, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let, let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one you have chosen for your ser servant Isaac. By this, by our plan here, just between me and you, God, by this little plan, and I'm going to know that you have shown kindness to my master. So the first thing he does is he prays. Let's stop here for another observation. <clears throat> Seeking God's will combines practical wisdom and divine wisdom. God gave us a brain. He gave us common sense. And so seeking his will, there are some practical things we can do. We see it here. He knew where the young woman would be. That's where he goes. He didn't have to pray about that. But there are a lot of young women. He needs to pray which one it is. And he says, God, here I am. I've used all the wisdom I know. So now you got to take over. Here's a plan. Do what I'm asking you to do. She's going to come. She's going to get a drink. 
then she's going to water camels. Now, God doesn't waste time in this story. He never wastes time. But look at verse 15. Before Eliezer had finished praying, God's probably saying, Eliezer, will you hurry up and finish praying so we can get moving here? Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. The NIV says virgin. The word better is just a, she's a maiden. She's a young woman. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring and she filled her jar and she came up again. So he's back. He sees her coming. Look at verse 17. The servant hurried. We always seeing Eliezer hurrying. He is on a mission for God. We'll get back to that in a little bit. He hurried to meet her and he said, please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my Lord, she said. And she quickly lowered the jar to her hands to give him a drink. So it's on her shoulders. She's got something to do. She's being interrupted, but she lowers it. She shows kindness and generosity. She gives him a drink. And then she says, after she'd given him a drink, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. There were troughs, uh, stone troughs, and that's where the animals by the well would, would drink. And so 10 camels, that's a lot of water. So think about, think about what she's just said. I will take care of those 10 camels who have been on a long trip. It's going to take some time. Now check this out. She quickly emptied the jar in the trough. She went back to the well for more water. So we don't know how many times she went back and forth to the well. This is a job. She's an industrious woman. Look at verse 21. I love this. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. So he's checking her out. He's watching her. And he's, he's praying. And he's probably, we've prayed this prayer before, right? Okay, I said, <laughs> I said, if she asked me for a drink, or if she gave me a drink, and then she watered my camels, she's the one. But like, was that just my plan? Was that coincidental? Lord, what are you, or is, it, is she the one? She, he's, he's, he's watching to learn if she's really the one. And uh, God, at some point in there, says, she's it. She's the one. Now, he still doesn't know exactly who she is, right? So, verse 23, or he does know who she is. She's, she's uh, a relative. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing about a becca. That's about five, um, about five and a half grams. And two gold bracelets. These would have been... have. Uh, uh, ornaments, they would have been uh, 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 great pieces of art. They would have shown the wealth of Abraham. Uh, the bracelets weighed 10 shekels. A shekel is about half an ounce. And she gave, he gave them to her. Uh, who's, uh, and, then he, and then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And that's when she does tell him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, bore the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. Now he knows for certain that she belongs to Abraham's family. And she said, we get plenty of straw and fodder and you can spend the night at our house. So with this ring, new ring nose, 
not cool for me, but I'm sure it'd been cool for her. And these bracelets on her arm, she runs back to her house. She says, we got, we got company coming. Uh, we, we, got, we, we, we got to get ready for this guy. He, he was, and this guy I'd never met before, he gave me, these, he gave me these, this nose ring. He gave me these bracelets. He had 10 camels. They were loaded down with all kinds of stuff. This is a wealthy man. He's coming to our house, get things ready, get some food ready. He has some men with him. We got to get water and, and, and fodder and straw for the camels, get everything ready. And you got to think a, a, a hundred thoughts are swirling in Rebecca's mind. What does all this mean? What's going to happen? Look at verse 29. Now, Rebecca had a brother named Laban. We're going we're gonna to learn a lot more about Laban later on. But just for now, Laban was very impressed with money, very impressed with wealth. And he hurried out to the man at the spring. Look at verse 30. This is telling. As soon as he had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm and had heard Rebecca tell what the man said to her, he went out to find the man. He's a wealthy man. Laban wanted to hang out with wealthy people. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord. Why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Verse 32, so the men went to the house and camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels and the water for him and his men uh, and the water for him and his men to wash their feet. And then food was set out before them. But he said, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. Again, Eliezer is always in a hurry. He is on a mission. I don't have time to eat right now. I got to tell you what's going on. I got to tell you the story. And then he tells him in verse 34, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly and he became wealthy. He's given, he's given him sheep and cattle and silver and gold and men servants and maid servants and camel and donkeys. My master's wife, Sarah, born him son in her old age, given everything to the son. And he goes to tell the story about how he came to find a wife for Isaac. He doesn't worry about any modesty here. He puts God's blessing on display and he tells the entire story again. Now, obviously, he's got to tell the whole story again to Rebecca's household, right? Because they've not heard it before. But we've heard the story before. Who's the writer of Genesis? Moses, writing after the fact. Moses knows he's just written this part of the story. He could have saved a lot of paper or a lot of stone by not repeating the whole story. And yet he does. He repeats the whole story. We, we, just, we just read this story and now he repeats it again. Why would Moses do that? Making this the longest chapter in Genesis. Why would Moses do that? Well, remember where Moses is. He's leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, right? They're in the desert. They're wandering in the desert. And he needs to repeat some things. When God wants us to hear something, to know something, to apply something, he repeats it over and over and over again, doesn't he? Read scripture. 
Start in Genesis and read to Revelation, and you will hear truths repeated over and over and over again. So someone, a Christian says, well, I've heard that before. Yeah, really? Yeah, you'll probably hear it again. The issue is, have you applied it? Because the important things God wants us to keep hearing. So God wanted this repeated. He wanted God's blessing on Abraham repeated. Here are the children of Abraham wandering in the desert. He wants them to remember. Remember Abraham. He buried Sarah in Canaan. That's our homeland. That's where we're headed. We're headed to the promised land. He talked about the inheritance of Isaac and how God passes down his blessings. He reminded them about this oath to not to take a Canaanite woman as your wife. Why would the children of Israel need to, be, uh, need, need, need to have that? Um, start all over. Why would they need to be reminded of that? Because they were always tempted to take pagan wives, right? They need to be reminded. We don't take Canaanite women. Provision of the angel to provide the way. God always provides. We're wandering in the desert. When we ever get to the promised land, God always provides the way in his timing. The prayer at the well. God answers prayer. Identification of Rebecca and praise to God. God specifically answers prayer. He made certain. This is repeated for the Israelites And we need to hear those same things repeated today, don't we? God has great things for us. Tremendous promises. Great adventure. He is always at work. Always answers our prayer in his timing, in his way. He'll never leave us wandering in the desert. He'll get us to the promised land. We've got to follow him. We can't quit. We've got to keep going. Look at verse 50. Laban and Bethuel, after he went through the whole story, answered, well, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or another. Here's Rebekah. Take her and go and let her become the wife of your master's son as what? As the Lord directed. Now, it's interesting. They want, to, uh, they want her to stay a while. I mean, it's a legitimate request. We're not going to see her if ever. We're not, we may not ever see her again. So can she stay here 10 days or so? And Laban says, I mean, uh, Eliezer says, no, we got to get back. Always in a hurry. Always on the mission. That's the last observation I want to make here. Accomplishing God's work doesn't stop until the work is done. Anyone here know a believer who stopped the journey about halfway? Oh, they're still a believer but they are stalled. They started out great guns, man. They were doing, they were living for the Lord. They were sharing the message of Christ with other people, but now just just hit a wall. Accomplishing God's will doesn't stop until the work is done. Eliezer makes the journey, prays the prayers, locates Rebecca, confirmed by God, and now he gets her back home. He delivers on the mission that God put him on. Look at verse 62. Now Isaac had come to Beer Lahai Roy, 
for he was living in the Negev. He went out. That's the southern part of Canaan. He, he, uh, he went out to the field to meditate. He looked up one day. He saw camels approaching. Rebecca saw this guy out there. She asked Eliezer, who is that? And said, that's Isaac. That's, that's your guy. So she covered her face as a sign of respect. They were introduced to each other. Look at verse uh, 67. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah. He married, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. All right, in the time we have left, two quick applications to this passage. Here's the first one. There, there are many applications and many lessons. Let me just give two. Preparing for the future begins today. We see that in Abraham. Abraham says, Isaac is 40 years old. He's the son of promise. Going to be a great nation. It's going to come through him. He's got to have a wife. And I got to make the preparations to do that. So he finds a right-hand man named Eliezer, who is in lockstep with him in his service to the Lord, his love for God. That's another whole lesson we could have, isn't it? Who's your Eliezer? Who's that guy walking? Men, who's that guy walking with you like Abraham had Eliezer who got it, who gets it spiritually, who's not dragging you down, who's in lockstep with you, who's challenging you? Who's the guy? Women, who's the woman? Who's your Eliezer walking with you spiritually on the same page? You're not dragging them along spiritually. They're challenging you and walking with you. Preparing for the future begins today. You don't wait until you're ready to draw up your will at the end of your life. Preparing for the future begins today. Parents, what are you teaching your children? What are you teaching your children about marriage? How are you demonstrating in front of them what a good, godly marriage looks like? How are you demonstrating in front of them what commitment looks like, even when you're going through tough times? What are you demonstrating in front of them regarding who they're going to marry? Are you talking to them? We have this thing called, uh, we call it uh, iPod or mate, iPod. Here are the initial things that I have to have in a mate. Here are the things I prefer. Here are optional things. Denied. If this happens in a relationship, it is over. Or if it's there beforehand, I won't start the relationship. How are you teaching that to your kids? Are you making sure your believing children know that? The option is for them, there's only one option, they need to marry a believer. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 to 15, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now, we can't guarantee that. I get it. There are some heartbreaking times. But what are we doing to show our children and teach our children about marriage. Remember, Abraham said, Don't, he, can't, he, can't, he cannot marry a Canaanite. We've got to make sure of that. Parents of young children, are you praying for your child's future spouse? You say, like one year old? No, I'm not. You know what? You should be. You should be praying for some other little one-year-old or two-year-old or three-year-old in some other part of the country or maybe the world Praying that God's hand of protection would be on them. Praying that God would keep them pure. Praying that God would keep that family intact so there's a, a healthy transference of what they've learned 
to a new relationship. Again, we don't get to pick our spouses for our kids, a different culture, but we can still be those who are praying and, and showing our kids this, 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 what we want to leave and what it looks like. How are, how are our kids going to know how to handle money unless we show them? If, if we're people who use money to get everything we want anytime we want it, what does that teach our, our, our children? If we're taking God's money, what he's given us, and using it on ourselves, what does that say to our kids? What about our gifts? God has given everyone a spiritual gift. Are you using it? Because where in the world are your children going to see how a believer uses his or her gift unless they see it from you? And talking about it is just half the story. It's doing it. Are you demonstrating these things to your children? A godly legacy is not just something that happens. It is, it is prayerful. It is intentional. It involves making hard choices even when the easier route is very appealing. And sometimes we don't like to make those hard choices, do we? I've got to read this to you. This is a real obituary. It just came out. Lady in Richmond, Virginia. Mary Nolan. Faced with the prospect of voting for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, Marianne Nolan of Richmond chose instead to pass into the eternal love of God. <laughs> On Sunday, May 15, 2016. <laughs> Some choices are hard, right? Okay, that, I just read a real obituary. I don't need any emails on that one. Here's the, here's the rest of the obituary. A faithful child of God. Marianne devoted her life to sharing the love she received from Christ with all whose lives she touched as a wife, as a mother, a grandmother, a daughter, a sister, a friend, and a nurse. She shared the love of Christ. Leaving a legacy starts today. Here's the second thing. From Eliezer, we learn this lesson. Don't quit. Even when you have to make a 500-mile journey with camels, don't quit. Even when you get sent on an assignment and you don't know how in the world you're going to accomplish it, you want me to go back to the home of your relatives and find a wife for Isaac. It's a tough assignment. Didn't quit. Eliezer kept after it. There was an urgency. He was in a hurry. He didn't want to wait. I don't want to eat. I got to tell you the story. No, we can't wait 10 days. I got to get back. I'm on a mission. God has something for me to do. I can't stand around. I can't get stalled. I can't quit. God has a great endeavor for every one of us. That's why he chose us to be his own. He chose you to be on his team. He chose you for great things. He created you in Christ to do the things that he had in mind for you to do. Are you getting those things done? Are they hard? Yeah. You get tired? Absolutely. But don't quit. Do the thing that God has called you to do.
Don't quit on your marriage. Don't quit on your kids. Don't quit on your parents. Don't quit on God. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Talks to the Philippians and all my prayers for you all. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this. Paul says, I am confident. Here's one thing I know for sure. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to what? Completion. You believe God's going to do that? What he started, he'll complete. He's sovereign, and we have responsibility. He'll get it done, but he wants to use us as an instrument. He has a great plan for us. And he wants us to partner in that plan. Don't quit. If you're here today and you would say, I've had better days spiritually, don't quit. Reenter the mission that God has for you. If you're here today and you say, oh, I had better days spiritually, I kind of jettisoned my walk with the Lord. You're still God's child if you're truly trusted in Christ. It's time to get back. No excuses. Journey's not too long. Challenges are not too difficult. He has great things for you. Don't stop. Don't quit until you've accomplished God's mission for you.